Steve Rode and Damon Day are coming at you fast, getting you out of debt with their true romance. Steve's the ying to Damon's yang, and they are here to save the day. A couple debt superheroes, Steve and Damon, coming your way. Hey, it's Steve Rode with Damon Day. You're back for another Get Out of Debt Guy podcast. We're going to try to do these podcasts more rapid fire. You can get more information more quickly. I don't think that's the right way to say it, but you get what you pay for here. When we start charging for the podcast, then we'll start adding quality with a K. All right, Damon, I got a couple of things I want to talk about today. You want to go first or what? No, because uh, true to form, I don't even have my notes in front of me. So you go first while I think about stuff. <laughs> All right. So I want to talk about, I have two things to talk about today. One is the administration has proposed, we got all these loans that are coming off forbearance. In fact, we've got about uh, 2 million mortgages that are going to come off forbearance pretty soon. And this is the tail end of the forbearance from the pandemic. And the, I don't care, you know, what administration it is, these ideas just don't seem to work for everybody because the new suggestion is to prevent foreclosure when these loans come off forbearance that federally backed mortgages uh, can have payments reduced up to 25%. So that'll extend the term of the mortgage even further. Now you've got all these people, it was up to 4 million people at one point, it's down to almost 2 million people right now that are taking advantage of the coronavirus pandemic, don't make a mortgage payment, and this has been going on for 18 months. So now you have all these people, this is like the student loan problem that we've talked about. You have all these people that are now used to not making payments. I don't care if you reduce it by 25% or whatever. Uh, struggling people are going to struggle to make any payment at all. Yeah, it's just kicking the can down the road is all it is. We're going to have a day of reckoning. It's just a matter of when we're going to have. So you look at the numbers of people who are seriously delinquent on their mortgages right now. You've got about 3% of the total mortgages. Now, what's interesting is people who are falling behind or who want to sell quickly often don't realize that they're actually selling their homes to investment funds that are buying up homes and then renting them out. So the availability of affordable homes continues to shrink as corporations buy them up and rent them to you. So here is what one... Isaac Boltansky, which is a great name. He's the director of policy research at Compass Point Research and Trading, which serves large institutional investors. I guess we'll have to take that into account. He said, if a reduction in monthly costs help keep that borrower in their home until they're back on their feet, that's a win for the borrower, the policymakers, and Uncle Sam. I don't know. Just extending your mortgage down to 40, 50, 60 years What's the difference between that and renting at this point? There's not, there's a lot of differences between that and renting, but just keeping somebody in their home, I guess if you have uh, appreciation that could help them out. And I see both sides of the equation. It's, it's almost once the government starts dabbling into it and starts trying to put band-aids on, on the bleed, it, it's just, there's no end in sight. There's no, there's never going to be an easy way to get back to quote unquote normal. Some people are going to get hurt. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. That's right. If we keep extending it is the, way, the way it always been. 
Oh, you, you can't paint regulation with a broad brush. It's not going to work for everybody. That's for sure. And research since the 2008-2009 financial crisis found that by deferring mortgage payments and reducing interest rates or extending the term of the mortgage, um, it helps to aid homeowners that are short on cash and keep them in their home. They just you know, can't have an expectation that they'll ever pay it off. If your mortgage is now extended out, let's say 40 years, and you're over the age of 40, the chances of you ever paying that mortgage off are getting smaller and smaller. Yeah, you're just making monthly payments. Yeah, you're right. They're they're just buying time until it's time to go into the old folks' home. Yeah, look at it. It's This is why it's so much like the student loan situation, because we look at these income-based repayment programs that the payments are so low to allow people to make some payment, but never pay off their loan unless they meet all well, of what? Yeah, I was just going to say that the interesting thing with the student loans and the big difference is with the housing, it's, it's a tangible asset. There's a roof over your head. With the student loan, it's, it's not secured by anything. There's nothing there. There's no asset there. And a lot of students that would argue that the education was worthless, <laughs> depending on what happened to them after college. So that's really going to be the interesting one. And you've got the foreclosure crisis and the moratoriums and all that. But when you really start to, to look at what's going on with the student loans, that's going to be, in my opinion, much, much bigger than the mortgage crisis. You only said, what, there's 3% of people behind right. uh, on mortgages right now, roughly? Yeah, student student loans I don't is know what, bigger. Do you know what? Yeah. Do you know, I'm just curious. Do you know what the normal, like on, on in a quote unquote normal year, the, the percentage of people at any time behind on mortgages is? I do. That's and why I, I asked it, you. I have it right you're, here. You're the numbers research guy. I don't know anything <laughs> until I say, hey, Steve. All right. So in uh, September, August and September of 2020, the that's when the maximum delinquency was occurring. It was 4.4% of all mortgages were 90 days or more behind and it's now down to 2.9 so, but that's because they don't they're not counting the moratoriums that is let me see it, it's just talking about people who are seriously delinquent and those are people who may be in a forbearance plan with foreclosure coming in the months ahead now how keep can it in be mind, less, less than it was people started go ahead the economy started recovering. People started making payments again, picking up where they left off. Another problem with this program has been lenders like Wells Fargo that stuck people in forbearance programs without consumers ever asking for it. It's turned out to be a real mess because on their credit reports, it was showing they're in forbearance, but they're making monthly payments. So it's all screwed up every time. This, this is like student loans. That's my next... Uh, story I want to talk about today was student loans, but I'm going to let you jump in with what you have. Just to finish my my thought on that, that, that last topic. So we almost got to it, but what's the percentage of people be seriously delinquent on student loans? Now, student loans, now that is an interesting number because when you look at the number of people, it's they always use the number of people who have missed payments or, or behind on their payments. And the government fails to generally include the number of people who are in deferment or forbearance. Technically, those are people who can't make their payments right now. And that number is about 25 to 30% of all student loans are not making current payments. Yeah, hey, no doubt about it. The number is huge. 
Yeah. So we're talking about the, you know, the mortgage crisis. Forget that's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> 3% well, of people are delinquent on their mortgage, but half the country are delinquent on their student loans. Yeah. It's just one problem on top of another that I totally understand. And in this equation between you and me, I'm the more liberal part of it. And I totally understand why we had to bail out people and give them moratoriums and all that other stuff because of COVID, which was an unusual situation. But simply putting payments on pause and then resuming at some point in the future, people's budgets have changed and they've expanded. And as the economy has improved, they've used that money for other obligations. And then when you add back in student loans or mortgages or car payments or whatever it is, generally that can fracture a budget. Wait, are you telling me that everybody that got a, a moratorium or a forbearance on their student loan because of COVID hasn't been diligently setting aside <laughs> that monthly payment in their savings account so that when that starts back up again, two years later, they can be like, oh, I got this. I got 20 grand just sitting there. I've been socking it away, just waiting for the time is going to start oh right God. up again. I mean, that that's, is, that's, that's what everybody thing does, right? right? Yeah. There are two people that have done that. Yeah. Here's the other thing. Your <laughs> argument about the, the homes are collateral, right? One of the arguments that I hear people making about student loans is they got the degree and the degree is the collateral. That's the asset that they got after investing in the student loans. Yet 75% of people who took out student loans never graduated. So they just have the debt. That's all. Yeah. This is a I don't think we want to get into it on, on, on this podcast as far as I would I'll just say this. For some people, college is a scam. You look at certain situations, and I know not everybody is the same, but some people should not be going to college. Some people should not be pursuing the type of degrees they're pursuing based on you know what they've got going on in their life. And you kind of cross at some point you cross over this barrier of someone sold them a bill of goods whether it's yeah. a counselor or the school or whatever society and, you know, sat down with the 17 year old kid exactly and just really oh this is the only way you can get ahead you throw some stats at him you got to do this you got to do this you got to do that and four five six years later that 18 year old is now 23 graduated having a hard time finding a good job according to the type of job the counselor said they were going to be able to get and they're sitting here staring at fifteen hundred dollars a month and yeah. student loan payments and and in hindsight that was not a good decision. And you can look at that and say, that kind of sounds like a scam, basically <laughs> convincing somebody to buy something that they shouldn't be buying with money that they don't have. It's pretty close to the definition of a, a scam. I would agree. It's, and it breaks people's minds when you talk like that because they can't understand, but college is good. College is where I need to go. And yet, Hey, I don't know what kids are thinking about today coming out of high school about selecting colleges, but in my day, one of the prime ways to select a college was, which one is the best party school? And how far can I get away <laughs> from mom and dad? And if you're going to spend seventy-five dollars or $100,000, that is not the, the reason to go to school today. It's hard when you're you know, 17 and 18 and you're talking to the guidance counselor or you're a parent of a 17, 18-year-old kid and been told your whole life that college is the only way and you want your kid to be successful. Every parent wants their kid to be successful. And it's very hard to say no when society is telling you that this is how your kid's going to be successful. And don't worry, all you have to do is sign here and we'll take care of everything. It's really hard as a parent to say no to that. You know what I mean? And so it's just, it's gotten well, to the point where it's, 
out of, out of hand is the understatement of the year. So my equation, my equal thing to look at when you're thinking about school, and you're going to find this totally off the wall, is uh, hotshot trucking. So hotshot trucking is, I, I don't know how it comes up with the name, but it's people who get a pickup truck and a trailer and they go out and they move freight or they move cars or something like that. And the reason I mention it is because you don't have to have a college education to do that. But there are some people who will go out and get a truck, get a trailer, and they'll be very successful. But they have to apply themselves in ways that a lot of people don't. They have to be away from home a lot. You have to work six days a week. You have to always be on the go, self-marketing, be an entrepreneur and a businessman and a closer and all that stuff. Not everybody is good at that. And yet those people didn't go out and spend all that money for college degrees, but they have lots of income opportunities. And look at, right, plumbers and other trades that can make a heck of a lot of money without having to go to college. Actually, I think some of those hotshot guys that you and I watch on YouTube probably did go to college and they started the hotshot business to pay back the college <laughs> that didn't do anything for them. You're probably right. So <laughs> they became... They became an entrepreneur out of necessity. So maybe in a backwards sort of way, college was a good thing for them. Yeah. It forced them to figure out how to make money after they graduated so they could pay it back. <laughs> yeah, I think you and I have both achieved a master's degree in life and what not to do at times too. Yeah, I, and I think that hotshot trucking, I've had, I, I'm one of those weird people that like to drive. When we go on vacation, we hook up the trailer and we drive. I just got back from a trip that was 8,200 miles. We went to New York for a baseball tournament for my son and we turned into an 8200 mile trip and i've often thought about i don't think i'd ever do it but i could drive i could hot shot truck i do financial consulting it's just a laptop and a cell phone and i could talk to my clients anywhere i've, I've been thinking about man I, I could drive truck and double dip and talk to yeah. my clients while i'm on the road and every time i think about it, i'm like oh i guess but then i get to oh i'm gonna be away from my family a lot you start bringing up all this practical crap about the <laughs> licensing Please. and insurance and yeah, all this stuff. And then I start running the numbers and I'm like, oh man, to make up for all that, I would have to like literally do it full time. I couldn't just dabble in it because I'm paying two grand a month for insurance or whatever. And you're just total Captain Buzzkill on my dreams. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pra practical Steve over here. Uh, that's right. Nobody well, likes practical Steve. On that note, I'm going to practically turn to you for what you want to talk about today. What I was going to talk about is pretty much unrelated because, um, and true to Steve form, he doesn't like to do the show before the show. So what that means is I have no idea what he's going to be talking about until he starts talking about it. So yeah. the topic that I was going to talk about today was a situation I had a while back with the client and it, it has to do with debt, obviously, but it, it really is about when you're in debt and you say this all the time, don't make an emotional decision. Don't rush into anything. And it's more about taking a step back and seeing the full picture of your situation mm -hmm. and what you're trying to accomplish. And I know when you, when you have this debt, it, it, you have this tendency to be reactionary and you're scared and you're gonna get this fear of the unknown and what's gonna happen. But oftentimes it makes it easy to make bad decisions and make what seems like a very tough situation much worse. And the case in point with this client is she wasn't working. She didn't have any income and she had a situation where she needed to make some changes. She was you know, looking for a job, but literally she had 
roughly 10 grand to her name. And she had a couple of debts that she was worried about, these credit card debts. And she really wanted me to resolve them for her. Call the creditors, work out a deal, make a settlement offer, just to get them resolved so she wouldn't have to stress about them. And the problem with that was it would take pretty much all of that $10,000 to do that based on the, the balances that she had on those cards. And, but she was just so focused on, I got to get rid of this debt. She wasn't really thinking about what's the highest and best use of that $10,000. You've got no income. The last thing you want to do right now is give that 10,000 to some company and then have no income and no savings at all. It would make a bad situation much worse. I essentially convinced her <laughs> not to resolve those accounts at that time, even though it took a while for me to convince her that keeping her money for now until she got a job made the most sense. And a so job. she went a job. Yeah. A job, yeah. something just get some money coming in first. So you can meet your basic expenses, keep a roof over your head, buy food, that stuff. That's the important stuff. And uh, a few months later, she ended up getting sued by discover, which is scary to a lot of people, but it's not that big of a deal. I can still resolve. And then she was at first, she was upset. Like I told you to solve this. I told you to get it resolved. And I said, okay, I can settle it right now if you want. So tell me how you know, the job search is going. Well, she hadn't found a job yet. What okay? job and I search? Said, oh, yeah. And, and she's still looking, she's doing her best. And it's just, it's tough out there. And I said, how much of that 10,000 do you have left? Cause it's been a couple of months. And she said, you were right. I needed most of that to get me to where I'm at now. I've got about $3,000 left. And I said, and she's like, I need you to resolve Discover. <laughs> and I said, no, you don't need me to resolve the Discover account. You've only, you've gone from 10 down to three, which means you've been burning through that at a couple thousand dollars a month. You have to get a job in the next month or you're sunk. Like who cares about Discover? And it, what really bothers me is if she would have, because we're going to get her straightened out. She's It's going to be fine. She's going to end up getting a job and then we'll work out a deal with Discover when she has the income to be able to afford to pay them something. And it'll be fine. If you've got no job, the credit an unsecured creditor can't do much to you. So that's the first thing you, you got to realize. You, you, got this, you, you build up this fear of what's going to happen in your own mind. But oftentimes when you really start to unpack it, there's nothing they can do. And if you don't have a job and you only have three grand to your name, discovers the last thing you should be worried about. And, but what bothers me about the whole situation is had she called a debt settlement company or a, oh, yeah. a credit counseling company or something like that, they don't take the time to take a step back and, and say, wait a minute here, you shouldn't hire us yet because sol solving that debt is not your number one priority. They don't do that. They say, Oh, you got 10 grand. We'll happily take it. And settle this debt. So what, where would that have left her? It would have left her broke, penniless, no job, no right. savings, covers not making phone calls anymore that you could just block. So the benefit would have been her phone doesn't ring. The downside would have been, she's got nothing, not even a dollar. And now she's in a real, and that's the thing that I wanted to bring up, which was when you're in debt, it's rarely ever an emergency. Take a step back and come up with an overall plan and strategy and focus on what's important when you have very limited funds. Unsecured debt is not important when you have limited funds and not much coming in. You, you talk to lots of debt collectors on behalf of your clients and try to work out situations. And one of the things that I learned over the years, and I also really got a good lesson in it when I was dealing with my own financial problems many years ago, which was instead of being afraid when the debt collector calls, you don't have to promise anything, but you also don't have to be a jerk 
either. I always say, make the debt collector your friend. You can say, Bob, have a nice day. Yeah, I don't have any money to pay you. How are the kids? <laughs> and establish a relationship yeah. with them and just be friendly. No, that's absolutely true. Uh, every conversation, I shouldn't say every, there's been maybe a handful over the years where I hung up and I was like, what? A, what? Yeah. Uh, if this was my show, I would have said the word, but I'm not sure what your parameters are <laughs> on your show. But, but most of the time, they're just people that have jobs. They're trying to do their job and they're actually nice. And it, for the most part, sometimes they're deceptively nice where they're actually shady and they're just trying to you know, see what information they can get out of the person. But like Steve said, as long as you're, you're not disclosing in any information, you have the right to remain silent when you're right. talking to a debt collector, but saying, Hey, look, I, I understand. I owe the money. I don't have it right now. I'm going through a lot of stuff. I'm working on it. And as soon as I have something, I'll give you a call back as a polite way to end the conversation. Although you do have to be a little bit forceful with it because the debt collector is trying to keep you on the phone, keep talking. Because then the next thing they're going to say is, oh, maybe you have a family member you can borrow it from, or maybe you can go get a loan from the bank. And this bitch, I mean, oops, I shouldn't, that's not my show. Sorry, bleep that out. You know what? You can, you can always trade a banana bread recipe or something. You don't have to uh, make a promise you can't keep. Bitch. Yeah. The biggest takeaway though is if you, <laughs> I, I meant that in a funny way, because I was going to say, bitch, please, have you seen my credit report? I can't get a loan from anybody. That, that's always my favorite when you got debt collectors calling and their helpful suggestion is, can't you get a loan to pay this one off? And it's, huh. if I could get a loan, I wouldn't owe you the money. <laughs> that's right. Life happens. Uh, real quick. So I, whenever I get that one for a client, which is not that often anymore, but I always used to say, sure. Are you willing to loan the client some money so they can pay you back? <laughs> you are a lender after all. <laughs> and they say, no, They're like, then why would you think another lender? The woman that you talked about that owed the 10 grand to discover it's a classic situation of why it is really beneficial to talk to, I was going to say someone like you, but talk to DamonDay.com. You can find him at DamonDay.com because uh, a third party who is not emotionally attached and invested in a situation can make far, experience too, can make far better informed decisions to help guide you along the way about what you should do instead of just reacting. The thing about debt is people that have debt have generally not been in this position before. It impacts their self-esteem and their self-worth. It's not like they're running out there to ask friends for advice and questions. And so they end up dealing with these things alone, lost, alone, afraid, confused, and making bad decisions along the way. So that's why I'm so glad that woman talked to you. And do, do you have her on the straight and narrow yet? Or is she like getting there? She's still, again, trying to get that job, which is number one priority. But the, the biggest thing is not knowing what in this case discover can and can't do is huge because it allows her to clear up her mental space not dwell on it not stress about it every day and focus on because if she doesn't get a job she's got much bigger problems yeah, so she doesn't yeah. need to be sitting there worried about how am i going to pay back discover how am i going to pay back discover and, and the biggest thing my clients tell me is just the, the peace of mind of being able to bounce things off of me and get some straightforward advice about here's what, what can happen. If you don't do this, this is the only thing that the creditor can do. Here's worst case scenario. And here's how you can counter that if that happens. But most importantly, we can do this and buy you the time that you need to go out mm -hmm. and do whatever it is that you're going to do. So just that, that peace of mind of knowing what can happen, I feel is 
the biggest benefit that that clients get when they call and they talk to me and they, they the, the beginning of the call they're in a huge panic by the end of the call they're like okay my situation hasn't changed at all but i actually feel better about it and that's key that is the damon day touch you help people feel better about their situation and you know yeah. what you should throw in some free banana bread recipes too yeah. Now, don't get me wrong. We're also going to get the situation solved, but in that moment, yeah. feeling oh, you know, you choose feeling one way about a situation versus feeling the opposite way can dramatically affect the overall outcome. Yeah, I totally agree. It's the difference between sleepless nights, suicide, divorce, or let's just deal with it. We can deal with it. No problem. It's, it's just that. For crying out loud. I always tell clients, it's your creditor's problem, really, not yours. They're <laughs> the ones that are owed the money, so relax. <laughs> All right, this show's going long, and I'm the one that gets to edit it. So let me wind up this podcast with, can you believe it's already been like 30 minutes? Unbelievable. You said you had two topics. I was like, it's going long, bro. So here we go. Fed loan servicing, right? The people who have been in charge of uh, administrating public service loan forgiveness. Damon, I don't know if you've heard about this, but this is going to be such a bad mess. Fed Loan Servicing has told the Department of Education, we don't want to service loans anymore. That's almost 9 million student loan borrowers that are going to get transferred to other companies because Fed Loan Servicing is getting I... out. Had you heard that? No. And how do you, the name is Fed Loan Servicing. So how do you get out of it with the name like that? They're actually Pennsylvania Higher Education Assistance Authority. That's the underlying. Are, but... Yeah. And another student loan servicer, Granite State. I don't know if you've ever dealt with Granite State or not. They only have. I, I have, but they have a very small percentage of loans compared to Fed Loan Servicing. Yeah. They only handle about a million student loans as opposed to Fed Loan Servicing, which is about actually about eight and a half million. Fed Loan Servicing for the most part, does all the public service loan forgiveness applications. They, not, not for the most part, for the entire part. <laughs> they do all of that. They do uh, public service loan forgiveness and the teach grant programs. So all of that is going to get transferred. The, they're going to have to transfer right now with the two servicers bailing. The Department of Education is going to have to transfer about 10 million student loan accounts to other loan servicers. That not only is that going to be, make a mess, but this is on top of those student loans are coming out of their forbearance or deferment at the same time as all these things are going to get transferred. Here's what Fed Loan Servicing said, and I totally agree with this. In the 12 years since Fed Loan Servicing accepted the terms of its federal servicing contract, the federal loan programs as managed by the U.S. Department of Education have grown increasingly complex and challenging while the cost to service those programs has increased dramatically. And at the same time, Fed Loan Servicing is getting sued all over the place for the lack of quality advice and service that they've delivered. So if you thought it was going to be a mess before, now you got 10 million student loan borrowers who are going to be coming out of and going to be have their loans end up who, who knows where. A mess will ensue. Is this what they mean when they say boondoggle? I don't know. Uh, I hadn't heard that. When did that come out? Uh, in the last couple of days. That is going to be a major. There's just so many borrowers that the way the public service loan forgiveness works is you don't really even get to apply for it until you get your supposed 120 
payments in. Right. And Fed Loan Servicing is the one that is supposed to be tracking those and updating you every year. And I don't know about you, but usually when databases get transferred to other companies, oh, it's, 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 it's pretty much it all goes real smooth most of the time. Yeah, 10 million accounts. It's going to be perfect. Don't worry about it. And, it's, and it's you're okay. going to have a situation where it, it's okay. It's okay. So you, you're going to have a situation where you're going to have a borrower that's that made their 120 payments and they're going to apply for it and they're going to get rejected because the computer doesn't say they made their 120 payments. And then Fed Loan Servicing is going to go off and do who knows what or break up or form a new entity or whatever they're going to do. And the borrower is really going to be left with no recourse trying to force the government to honor some forgiveness program when the government records show that they didn't meet the criteria yet. And short of filing a lawsuit, which is going to cost more time, effort, and money. I should have been a lawyer. Lawyers always get paid, man. <laughs> and that they're going to be just forced to suck it up. And all you got three more years on your plan or whatever it's going to be. And they're going to have no good recourse to so fight that. Fed loan servicing, you mentioned, what are they going to go do? They have said they will continue to expand their successful commercial servicing and mission-based student lending software as a business and focus on the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. They're servicing eight and a half million accounts. Where do you think all their employees are going to go? They are all going to be looking for new jobs and hoping that they get their mortgages and car payments and student loans on forbearance. Yeah, I, I can't blame them. If you have a choice no, between yeah. working in a private, which is what they're doing, their, their private sector accounts are profitable and working with the government sucks. Let's just use public service loan forgiveness. And this is going to be a difference in political administrations. So under the last administration, even though Fed Loan Servicing said you are qualified and have made all of your payments for your public service loan forgiveness, the past Department of Education said, oh, hold on a minute. You can't trust them. That doesn't count. We have to review your application. And it's going to take us some time to review your application. And you need to continue to work for your employer that qualifies. And you need to wait for us to make a determination. So the the vast majority of people that applied were turned down. It, we have to wait and see what happens under this administration, but I don't know how any company would service loans over 12 years, over multiple political administrations, and be able to control the quality of their services and cost and do a good job. That's just impossible. So bye-bye. Yeah, they can't. This is why This is why when I talk to clients, this, and I understand the, the advocates for bringing back bankruptcy protections, this is what they point to all the time. That because you know the opponents of bankruptcy protections always say, oh, you have IBR and you have all these public service loan for you have all these programs, and it's no, these programs all suck. In in theory, maybe the ideas sound pretty good, but you've got this, for lack of a better word, this massive boondoggle that you're promised forgiveness in 20 years or 25 years or 30 years, depending on what program you're on. Yeah. yeah. And how can you have any confidence that you're ever going to get that? But yet people have to literally plan their lives around this debt. Am I going to go into public service so I can try to get this? People have taken lower paying public service jobs mm -hmm. in order to get this promised forgiveness after 10 years. Right. And, you know, if they don't get that, how is that? It's certainly not fair. They've made life decisions based on these rules and these laws. And then these things change all the time. And so whenever you can avoid getting into a government program, 
you should if you have the ability to resolve your student loans in a different way would be my recommendation. And as a qualified liberal, I would like to say I totally agree. That's a surprise, isn't it? No way. No way. I know. <laughs> All right. That's it, man. We got to get out of here because I got to edit this crap. So you've been listening to the Get Out Deck Guy show with Damon Day, D-A-M-O-N-D-A-Y.com is the place to find them. And if you want that banana bread recipe, I'll send it on to Damon. You can get it from him. So ta-ta. Yeah, and edit, edit that word out because I don't think it came across in the joking way that I intended. <laughs> what? When you, your bitch word? It was supposed to be like, bitch, please. When I oh. didn't get to the please because you started laughing. <laughs> it was intended in that kind of a joking way. And then it just came out bitch. And that's not how it was. Don't say that to the debt collector. I don't want that to be the takeaway. Well, you don't have to be a bitch about it. Come on, let me do my job. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that would have been self-talk. That's not what's coming out of your mouth when you're on the phone with the debt collector. That's right. That's your inside voice. <laughs> yeah. That's the internal voice we all have. Don't confuse that. Don't say it out loud. All right. Exactly. Ta-ta for now. That's your exit? Apparently. All right. See ya. Hey, this is Steve Rode, the Get Out of Deck Guy. You know that thing that you just listened to? Well, believe it or not, that was actually the Get Out of Deck Guy show. If you have a question that you'd like to ask about money, credit, or debt, just visit my site, getoutofdebt.org, getoutofdebt.org, and click on the Ask a Question link at the top of the site. I look forward to hearing from you.